This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. As countries adapt to low commodity prices, divergences in monetary policy, and ambitious reform movements in some key markets, clients and investors will be keeping a close eye on growth markets in 2015. Michael Sherwood, Vice Chairman of Goldman Sachs and Co-Chief Executive Officer of Goldman Sachs International, is here to put these developments in context. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jake. The growth markets have tremendous economic potential. Some of them have shown more than potential, uh, but they also come with a measure of risk, and that's been increasingly obvious recently. Before we take a deeper look at individual markets, where we're seeing a lot of activity Tell us, what questions are our clients, Goldman's clients, asking right now when it comes to growth markets more generally? I think more generally, growth markets have become an asset class that investors around the world have had to focus on. You know, when we first started thinking about them probably 20 or 30 years ago, I guess really with Jim O'Neill coming up with the acronym BRICS, you know, he always said you had to dream with BRICS. You had to dream that there was political stability. You had to dream that there weren't massive economic problems in these countries in order to get the growth rates that would make them growth markets. And, you know, I think at that time in in the 90s, you know, the growth markets were accounting for 10 or 20 percent of the growth in the world. You know, if you look back at the last decade, it's been 30, 40 percent of the world's growth. And so, you know, investors have to dream a little bit. But they, they take some risk and they, and they get an incremental return. And, and many of these countries have performed extremely well. I think, you know, you have to be careful. You have to watch the cycles, the political cycles. And, you know, often those political cycles lead to economic cycles. And, you know, obviously China's been the standout performer. And, and then, you know, from time to time, other markets have come and gone. And we see it today. I mean, obviously, very significant problems in places like Russia and Brazil. But uh, overall, if, if you'd been invested in this asset class for any long period of time, it, it's been a good return. Yeah, you've done very well. Yeah. Um, so focus in to start on India. You were there recently, and there's a lot of optimism about India's prospects right now. Uh, you saw clients and investors yeah. while you were there. You probably talked to the government. Talk a little bit about why it's exciting and, and specifically what sectors have the most potential uh, in today's well, economy? I think India is particularly exciting today because you've got a new government and a, and a very forward-thinking government. And, and Modi is a, a very popular choice in the country and he's a reformist. And he's a man who comes from really direct experience of running a province. You know, he was the head of Gujarat for many, many years and did an excellent job there. And so he's tried to take that can-do attitude to the government. The government is clearly one that is looking to get a lot of reforms done. It's getting, uh, you know, it wants to invest in the infrastructure of the country that's somewhat behind. The budget recognizes that. And and India has some natural advantages. It has obviously an enormous population, very young population. The demographics are excellent. Um, You know, it, it has the ability to really develop roads, rail, uh, infrastructure. There is a significant amount of defense spending in India would be another sector that, that's interesting. And more recently, we've even seen this sort of global trend of very large internet valuations, as you've seen in the US and China, you know, move over to India and where you have a lot of people and the ability really to use smartphones that drives valuations as well. So the technology sector in India, I would say, is another sector that's done really well. But consumer, e-commerce, defense, and as I said, infrastructure, those would be the sectors that I think you know, investors are focusing on right now. You talked about Modi and the new government. A lot of the optimism in the economic and the markets around India is just 
because of the change in government. So how do you grade them on reform so far? A lot of reformers have come and gone in India and been disappointing. How do you think they're doing? I it's early have, days. Yeah, but I think yeah. you have to say it's early days. I think, you know, if anything, I would say the markets and the optimism is ahead of actually, you know, the reforms that they've got done. I think, though, it's, it's, it's more of a sense that this is a government that wants to stamp out bureaucracy. It wants to take out regulation. It wants to be a can-do kind of government. You know, they, they have significant problems. They only control one house. It's very difficult to get things done. Um, but, you know, their influence and their uh, modus operandi is clearly in the right uh, direction. And, you know, when you meet with entrepreneurs, people who are trying to build businesses in all sorts of sectors, real estate, for example, they say the zoning is much better, the ability to get things done is improving, the red tape's disappearing. You know, we have some investments, for example, in uh, renewable energy, you know, the way that they're trying to push clean energy, for example, in, in India is positive. You know, we've been in wind, we'll probably go into solar as well. And everything is, uh, is very much as you would expect of a forward-thinking, can-do government that wants to get things done. The attitude in the government, the way people work, the, the work ethic is totally different from what people observe in the past, and, and Modi's really pushing that himself. Uh, shifting gears from India to China, China has really realized its potential at a time when India is still struggling to realize its potential. But, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a slowdown in the economy. Yeah still growing very strongly by any any measure. Um, so what do you make of the talks surrounding the forecast for this year, and, and do you think there's really a cause for concern about a slowdown there? Our, uh, our forecasts are still pretty strong. I mean, I think we expect China to grow 6 7% this year and then go into That's a... That's a big number. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the pe people are concerned about the accuracy of these numbers, obviously. You know, as China's grown, there's obviously been a buildup of credit and you see that particularly at the banks, and you also see it a little bit in the real estate sector. And so, you know, foreign investors who look at China wonder how all these bad debts will work out over time. But I have to say, I think the, the plan is, is very much in place. The government's resolute. The reforms, you know, relate to many sectors in China. The liberalization of the financial sector, opening up of the capital markets, I think, will be a, a very important thing for China and for us, but also for worldwide investors, the ability to be able to invest there, you know, much, much easier. The continued urbanization in, in China is obviously a, a trend that, that, that continues. Um, the reforms of the SOEs, and with that also the sort of local government finances. You know, this is a plan, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to take a long-term view on China. My experience is things happen, but they happen slowly. I think also the whole move to anti-corruption and transparency, you know, on the one hand, that's frozen some companies, but on the other hand, it's setting a playing field for a much more open and easier society to invest in, you know, as you go forward. And, and the government's absolutely committed to it, and you see it everywhere you go in China. Goldman's been in China for a long time, yeah. I, and, and we have taken the long-term view. We've invested there, sometimes even before the business was was really the business opportunity set was ripe. Um, how do you think about the banking business, particularly Western banking in China today? Well, I think it's been slow to open up. I think, you know, we have to deal with issues in China that we don't deal with in, in other places we do business. You know, we're still, you know, firms are in joint ventures with locals. We'd love over time to own our own businesses, our own securities businesses, and I'm sure it will come. And, you know, when you see, for example, 
you know, the Hong Kong Shanghai Connect, for example, mm -hmm. that's really opened up the equity market. We'll see Shenzhen open up soon. You know, the, the reformers are moving along that pace. I actually think it's in everyone's best interest. I think that the market will be more liquid. The uh, ability for international investors to come into the market will be that much easier. So it'll be good for us, but it will also be good for their economy. And obviously, you know, over time, the liberalization of the financial sector, you know, I think will be, will be a very attractive opportunity for us. Look, it's something we have to invest in and for the long term. You know, I, uh, you know, I lived in Europe in the 80s when the firm started investing in Europe. And I got to tell you, it took 10, 15 years for us to have a significant business there. And today it's a very significant part of the firm. I think of China a little bit like I used to think about Europe when I was growing up at the firm, you know, in the mid 80s, early 90s, you know, and I'm sure 10, 15 years from now, the next generation of people that run the firm will want to know that we built a solid China business. And, you know, this is this is probably the most significant investment that we're making um, you know, in any of the growth markets, so certainly the most significant investment and, and obviously the biggest economy. Yeah, and even today we could talk about that, but the European capital markets still have a long way to go. Moving from China north to Russia, it's hard to talk about Russia without talking about the situation in Ukraine and how that's impacted the business environment there. It's basically frozen activity. You've spent a lot of time in Russia over the years. Aside from the resource sector, which has been the linchpin of the economy, what are the other businesses that have the potential to emerge as hopefully tensions subside there? Well, look, I think, as you said, you can't think about Russia today without really examining the political crisis that it's going through. And it's meant that, you know, many foreign companies don't want to invest in Russia right now. And so you have to rely on entrepreneurs who are building their own businesses. I think over the last few years before the Ukraine conflict, you know, you would have said the consumer sector was growing quite quickly, the technology sector was growing quite quickly. I think there are plenty of good opportunities to invest in Russia. Our own experience uh, over the last five or ten years has been good. You know, we would have expected to have more problems than we actually had. And we, we've invested in companies away from the resource sector, you know, different consumer companies, credit card businesses, that sort of thing. And the returns that, that we've made have actually been quite decent. I do think we're going through a new phase now, you know, which is very polarizing. And the investment outlook today, given everything that's happening uh, with Putin and, you know, this recent murder in, in, in Russia, is, makes it extremely difficult. Michael? Jumping over to South America, what countries and industries on the continent do you see as best positioned for growth this year and beyond? I think more generally, the smaller countries are the ones where we've done better. And, you know, some of the countries like Colombia, like uh, Chile, like Peru, these, these countries have done reasonably well and there have been good opportunities for us. Mexico, not too bad either. Look, uh, Argentina, Venezuela are, are really disappointing, and, and Brazil is struggling as well. But, you know, our hope is with the new government, new economics team, Brazil will address their challenges. I mean, obviously, the Brazilian economy uh, starts at, at very weak levels in terms of debt to GDP and, and fiscal deficits and this sort of stuff. But uh, again, we're going to be in it for the long run. And, you know, the Brazilian economy is by far the biggest. But there are good opportunities for us in some of the peripheral Latin American businesses as well. We just opened a broker dealer in Mexico. And we've seen some interesting investment banking type opportunities in some of these smaller countries as well. Yeah. You'll be heading to Brazil pretty soon. A lot of challenges on the macro side and also on the micro side. But what are you going to be focused on when you're there? Well, for us, I think there are, there are still good opportunities with the corporates, um, and we have obviously a big securities business. We're a major market maker in, in the government debt business there and in the equity business. But look, clearly, um, you know, they need to rebalance the economy somewhat. They need to make some structural reforms. 
you know, we've seen very high inflation in Brazil. We have a new government and, and there's really a lot to do. They need some monetary policy tightening. And I, I think over time, if you take more of a medium term view on Brazil, they can actually sort things out. But, you know, they're suffering from too much leverage in the economy, too much leverage at some of the banks. Um, back on the home front, uh, Europe. Europe has some challenges. The central bank has moved and, and done some fairly dramatic things. But what other steps do you think are necessary to um, provide some stimulus to the economy there? Well, look, I think the ECB has been the only good thing, really, keeping Europe on track. You know, the main issue are really structural reforms, labor reforms across Europe. Um, you know, Germany obviously got its labor reforms done a, a, and, a and long surprise, time ago. surprise, surprise, they're doing well. And, and, and yeah. they're doing yeah. well. And, and I think, by the way, that, you know, some countries in Europe might have wasted the opportunity to make good reforms, but some have done a lot. I think particularly if you look at some of the periphery countries like Ireland, like Spain and Portugal, these countries are doing much better in the last couple of years. The actual, the recent data out of Europe, both in terms of GDP growth and employment, is marginally better. I just think some of the bigger countries, France, Italy, you know, have really benefited from a flight to quality from QE and probably haven't pushed the agenda as hard as that they, they've needed to to get structural reforms done in their country. France obviously still very reliant on the public sector, very significant amount of GDP. The majority of GDP comes from the public sector in France. You know, over time, you'd like to see much more easy uh, employment uh, policies so that people are encouraged to go and build businesses there. I think also the flow of credit you know, we've talked a lot about the European capital markets recently. Uh, you know, it, it's fine if you're a big company. It's easy to get credit. It's much more difficult if you're a small company. And yeah. so... And there are a lot of small, com there are companies, a lot of small in, companies in, particularly in, in some in, of those countries you were just yeah, talking I, about. I think, in, I think in Europe, 50% of the workforce work for companies that are less than 50 people in size. Yeah. You know, the equivalent number is like half that in the U.S. So the flow of credit to SMEs in Europe is a critical part of really pushing the economy forward. And that's really where the banks have been a little bit clogged up. The other thing I, I would say is, you know, if you look at the US, 70 odd percent of financings that are done are done in the capital markets away from the banks. The reverse is the case in Europe, 70 And the banks are pulling back too. And the banks so. are pulling back. They're really only lending to the countries that they're, they're host countries. And so, you know, the, the flow of financing to smaller countries, countries that have had credit issues, places like Italy and Spain have been quite difficult. Going back really well, to Europe, but to the growth markets as well, one, one of the problems some of these countries have seen is just the collapse in oil prices, which has been a benefit to others. But um, when you think about the impact of oil uh, across the growth markets in particular, how do the exporter countries, the resource countries adapt? Well, I think it varies from, from country to country. I think, um, for example, if you look at Russia, the, the one thing they've adapted is they've massively uh, deflated the currency. You know, currency is off 50 or 60 percent, you know, quite apart from oil. I mean, if you're a resource producer in Russia, for example, if you're in the coal business, coal prices are down 20 percent, but your domestic expenses are down 40 or 50 percent. And so actually some of these companies are doing quite well. You know, I think it's been more difficult in Brazil, for example, although the currency has depreciated there, but you've seen it feed through to credit spreads and, and it's been very difficult for some of these countries. Obviously, the flip side of that is places like India and China are benefiting enormously from the fall of oil and you know as we remain pretty uh, bearish on oil and think you know it'll probably stay uh, at, at lower levels for a little bit longer than probably the market uh, perceives so you know it really depends uh, you know what side of the equation you're on it's a mixed bag in the growth markets one last question michael on the longer term in the growth markets we talked a little bit about this at the beginning but 
when you think about this business, particularly our, our business in growth markets, where do you think it'll be in the next three to five years? And I really think China has to liberalize more. I do think China's going to be the country that's really going to drive our growth. There are a lot of peripheral countries around the world, smaller countries that we have very good businesses in. You know, places, certain countries in Africa, South Africa, Turkey's been a good business for us. Places like Korea, like Malaysia. You know, there are many countries around the world where we've had a decent amount of business. But the mainstay of it is our greater China business, Hong Kong and China. You know, if, as I look forward, I, I'm pretty encouraged by India. We talked about India. I think India can be a big growth place for us, both on the investment banking side, but also finding interesting sectors to invest in. I think we'll have to wait and see a little bit in, in Russia and Brazil. And as I said before, you know, Brazil is also a good trading and sales business. But the capital markets in, in Brazil and Russia have been pretty frozen. China's been a good business for us, and those capital markets are really open. So, look, the firm's going to stay the course. We're going to continue to invest. We're going to invest prudently. Uh, we're going to continue to be very focused on uh, our P&Ls, but, but also on our long-term uh, footprint. And, you know, these are countries where you build relationships over a very long period of time. It's very hard to go in and go out, and that's not a strategy that, that we would want to adopt. And so we'll keep the right number of people. We won't overexpand so that we can ride out cycles, which will invariably come and go. But, you know, look, this is, this is a very key part of the, of the business at Goldman Sachs. You know, many of our senior people are based in these regions. A lot of our senior management travel in these regions all the time. And uh, we're going to continue to do what we can to help these countries grow. It's good for them and good for us. And that's the business that we're in. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining Thanks, us Jake. today. Thanks, I appreciate it. This concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we hope you join us for future podcasts. This podcast was recorded on March 4th, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.